as a journalist, for example, if you're describing something where sophisticated, professional, experienced actors are trying to trick you, for example, by giving you a mix of 90% accurate information with a couple of fakes and forgeries slipped in. So the correct information is there to convince you that 100% is correct, but it's not. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. At the height of one of the most eventful weeks in recent American history, which hasn't exactly been uneventful, at the height of the protests over police violence and the murder of George Floyd, at a crucial time in the global pandemic of COVID-19, the attention of virtually all media outlets uh, in the United States, and especially the New York Times, was for 48, 72 hours on whether or not a sitting United States Senator, Tom Cotton, should have been allowed to publish a nasty op-ed in the Times, arguing for non-peaceful protesters to be contained by military forces. Now, I want to say two things about that. The first is that there are genuinely two different ways of conceiving what an opinion page like that of the New York Times should do. On one conception, it should be rooted in a set of basic principles. That is my preferred solution. The Atlantic, the magazine for which I write and which I deeply love, has a self-conception as serving liberal democracy. Now, there are many arguments printed in The Atlantic with which I robustly disagree. The magazine does a great job of having a broad range of opinions, but by and large, The Atlantic is not interested in printing opinions of people who are opponents of democracy. The second conception, which traditionally has been that of New York Times, is to publish all the opinions that are fit to print. Now, what that has meant in the case of the New York Times in the last years is that they have published many interesting, compelling, possibly true arguments by less well-known people, as well as Vladimir Putin defending Russia's actions in Syria, the Taliban, Marine Le Pen, propagandists for Viktor Orban. Now, the reason for that is that these were all opinions that were notable by virtue of the important entities that helped them. They gave Times readers important information about what major players in the world believe and argue, even if the editors of the New York Times presumably assumed that most of their readers would disagree with them. Tom Cotton's op-ed was clearly in that category. Now, I think it would have been perfectly appropriate not to print the op-ed. It would be perfectly appropriate for the New York Times to want this op-ed page to be more like the Atlantic than what it has traditionally been. But I do think it was dishonest of editors of the New York Times to claim that the problem with the op-ed was over factual inaccuracies. And it was very strange to fire the head of the op-ed section, James Bennett, over standing squarely in the tradition of his own newspaper. Now, the more important point, because I am falling into the trap that I'm about to describe here myself, the more important point 
is that this simply was not so important a story. The fact that a hugely influential United States senator holds these beliefs is important. I wish it wasn't the case. I wish Tom Cotton was not close to political power. I wish he was not one of the plausible candidates to run for president for Republicans in 2024. But he is. And focusing on whether or not his words are printed in the New York Times rather than whether he holds power and how we can change that is simply the wrong outlet for our understandable rage. And just as importantly, it has led us to ignore even more important media stories. What should have been the most important media story of the past month is not Tom Cotton and his op-ed. It is the fact that Donald Trump has now managed to put Aparachik in charge of the Voice of America, that people like Steve Bannon, people like Sebastian Gorka, are apparently going to have a platform in the media outlet that has traditionally done more than just about any other to fight for the basic values of liberal democracy around the world. This is a genuine outrage which will lastingly undermine democracy in a way that an op-ed by a sitting U.S. senator does not. And I wish that we were paying more attention in this case and in so many others, to the stories that really matter. Now it's my real pleasure to introduce you a colleague of mine at SAIS at Johns Hopkins University. Thomas Ridd is Professor of Strategic Studies. He has been very, very involved for a long time in understanding the operations of secret services, the attempts of spreading misinformation. He has a great new book called Active Measures, which gives a lot of historical heft and a lot of analytical heft to discussions about the ways, for example, in which Russia did and didn't influence the 2016 elections. If you're interested in understanding the role of foreign agents in democratic elections in the United States and in other countries, if you're interested in how secret services shape international competition, this conversation, and by the way, his book, is the one for you. Thomas Ritt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Yasha. So your work for a number of years and in this new excellent book that you have out has been about misinformation. And I want to make sure that we talk about those forms of influence taking by security agencies and other actors more broadly, this, as you point out, uh, throughout your work and in the new book, is not just a story about Russia. But of course, it is to some extent, in the current context, a story about Russia and the 2016 election. How did you first become drawn into this subject? And how did you realize that this was an important topic before many other researchers? Yeah, so I'm actually, by training and by choice, focused on information security, so cybersecurity. And I remember in early 2016, I was in the final phase of investigating an old Russian hacking campaign. Old in this context means 1996, 1997, and then forward. So it's known as Moonlight Maze. 
So I was deep, deep in the forensics of that uh, case. We managed to find an old server that was used then as a transit point and had all the log files. So it was very exciting to work with this sort of, it's the infosec version of archaeology, what we did then. So I was in the middle of tracking this hacking campaign when the election interference story broke. And what I mean is the June 15th story that the DNC had been hacked, the Washington Post story and blog post by CrowdStrike. And I looked immediately, obviously, looked at the forensics and talked to a number of people tracking these operations. And it became clear that, one, the evidence that points to Russian intelligence operations here is extremely strong. And two, that the destruction of the disinformation component that immediately showed up was also part of the same campaign. So that's how I got into it. So what was the nature of that campaign? I mean, was the purpose that Vladimir Putin said, I think Donald Trump is going to be much more uh, helpful to Russian interests than Hillary Clinton, and so I'm going to sort of do everything I can to get him elected? Or was it, I understand your position is a much broader purpose to destabilize American politics, to make American citizens distrust each other, and so on? Yeah, that's a difficult question because obviously we have very limited high quality information on Russian leadership decisions. So, you know, when you study the history of disinformation, you have access, when you go further back into the Cold War, you have access to the actual memos and you can clearly say what the purpose of a specific operation was. We do not have that level of detail here available. So there's a degree of speculation when we talk about Putin's own motivation. But I would say I have moderate to a high confidence when I say that this operation was not about supporting president or at the time candidate Donald Trump. It was not pro-Trump, it was anti-American. It was to weaken American democracy. And really it was also to weaken Clinton because presumably many Russian observers, and there's reason for us to believe that, were as surprised by the election of Donald Trump as Donald Trump was. So that's an interesting point, that if Russians were expecting that Hillary Clinton is very likely to win the election, they didn't necessarily think, we can make sure that Donald Trump wins and that's going to be better for us. They thought, well, let's make sure that this election is going to damage American politics as much as possible and damage a future President Clinton as much as possible. Yeah, so why don't we, you know, wind back a little bit and zoom in. I think nobody has done that appropriately not even the Mueller investigation, wind back and zoom in to why the election interference as we know it today and how precisely it actually started in June 2016. So the story most likely evolved as a response to the Panama Papers leak. So you will recall that the Panama Papers leak became the big leak of this uh, Panama law firm, Mossack Fonseca, which implicated the number of people in Putin's inner circle. It became public on the 3rd of April. Now, John Podesta was hacked on the 19th of March, so about two weeks before that. So it's important to know that Süddeutsche Zeitung, which was one of the newspapers reporting out the Panama Papers leaks, contacted people close to the Kremlin in early March. So the Kremlin knew this was coming. And indeed, we can see the preparations, the targeting of political democratic entities picking up in the second week of March. So that is an interesting timeline. It appears, and we know this from public statements from President Putin as well, it appears that the Russian leadership interpreted the Panama Papers as an American 
offensive operation against Russia. I don't think there's any substance or evidence to support this theory, but it's quite possible that Russian leadership interpreted the Panama Papers this way and then escalated in response. That's very interesting. So actually what we see as a proactive offensive set of measures, which may have been part of a pretty strategic long-term plan on this theory would turn out to be, in their minds, a form of defensive, nearly self-defense, that's much more tactical, much more short-termist, much more tit-for-tat. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. I have no doubt that that is how people in the intelligence community, political circles in Moscow would see the story. But let's continue with the specific sort of detailed look for a moment. So what we see is John Podesta's account gets hacked on the 19th of March. Then around a week later, we see on Google Trends, you can pull up the trends of a specific search term, when somebody searched for a specific expression on Google for the first time. You can't pinpoint who it was. The FBI can, Google can. We can't, but we can see that soon thereafter, somebody was Googling DC Leaks. DC Leaks was one of the engineered front organization's websites that then started surfacing material that was hacked. And it appears, and if I had to speculate here, and obviously I don't know, but just based on my knowledge of past operations, I would assume or I would speculate that somebody inside the GRU, Russian military intelligence, was Googling DC leaks to see if that is already a brand that is, so to speak, occupied, whether it's free to use. And they didn't find anything on it. We know that soon thereafter in Late April, they start registering the website after that Google search a couple of weeks later and ultimately will put, and this has not been publicly reported out, it's in my book, but they put files that they hacked from John Podesta's inbox into the first, very first leak that goes public on the 6th of June. So even before anything else becomes public, John Podesta's inbox has already been harvested for public leak purposes. So um, the whole notion that this is all a DNC leak, I think, is, is in a little misguided because John Podesta's inbox plays such a crucial role throughout. That's fascinating. So on the one hand, you are very clearly dispelling the notion that Russia did not interfere in the election, that sort of the whole Russia story was a hoax, as the president likes to say. On the other hand, I take it that you're also quite skeptical about the most maximalist claims about a connection between the Trump campaign and Russia or the Kremlin. You know, why are some of the claims that people have been making about very active collusion between Trump and Russia not exactly accurate? And should we essentially think of it as Russia playing both sides of the American political spectrum? Or is there some directionality here that we should take seriously? I mean, I come from the available evidence. That's sort of my point of departure. And the wider operation in 2016 had three components, or in principle had three components that I should be careful. The first one is the hacking and leaking, which we just talked about. The second one is the social media trolling, troll farm, social media fake account activity. And the third one is direct contacts between potentially between Russian intelligence and the Trump campaign. Now, there's extremely strong evidence for the first, lots of evidence. I mean, I could go into mind-numbing detail on the first. 
On the second, there's also decent evidence through the Internet Research Agency and a little bit through GRU as well that they did fake social media accounts, etc. But here we tend to exaggerate the impact very significantly. So, And on the third, the evidence is much more shaky. There's a lot more speculation involved. And I, I'm just not even touching number three because it's a fraught subject of conversation and really we don't need it for the 2016 story. I will add just one quick observation here. The level of tradecraft and the level of just professionalism that we see in the 2016 influence campaign and active measures campaign is very low. We're not looking at a professional operation. So if you see very low quality tradecraft in the Hacken League, low quality tradecraft in the obviously from the Internet Research Agency and the social media outreach, why should we assume that there's high-quality, sophisticated human intelligence tradecraft at play in the direct connections? I just didn't see that. Well, so I don't mean to push you to speculate about number three, but I do think it's important to think about it in a more political context, which is to say that you know, I'm reflecting on the space of people who were very worried about the rise of populism and the rise of Donald Trump from the beginning. Rightly so, I think, as we found out in all kinds of ways over the last three or four years. Our institutions are under considerable attack from the administration. But that, of course, made many people predisposed to jump on the most maximalist interpretation of the nature of that Russian involvement in the 2016 election. Now, that comes in the flavor of overstating how much impact some of those fake social media campaigns have had. But it also came in the flavor of speculating that, you know, Donald Trump might be a Russian steeper agent and so on and so forth. I guess the one sort of tough question about that that I'm asking myself and I want to ask you is whether people who, who jumped onto that bandwagon were part, unwittingly, of the Russian toolkit, I mean, was part of the idea of trying to divide this country to the maximum extent that when plausible enough evidence of funny business would leak, some people on the side of the detractors of Donald Trump would actually exaggerate what we can conclude from that in a way that itself helped to divide the country even further. In a nutshell, and I'll provoke you asking that question, but in a nutshell is... Has Robert Mueller become a useful idiot? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I think we might have to distinguish between Robert Mueller and some of the most maximalist claims in that context made in the media. Uh, But sure, if you want to put the question that way and make your own life more difficult, is Robert Mueller a useful idiot? It's a tough question, and the answer is by no means clearly no. I'll just say one thing. The way the indictments were published, I think, was problematic. Why did the special counsel's team decide to publish the IRA indictment first? The IRA indictment, in my mind, is one of the weakest indictments. It has a systematic bias built in overstating the impact of the social media interference. And it kicked off and sort of kicked into high gear a conversation that was not that helpful. And could you just remind readers what you mean by the Internet Research Agency indictment? Is that right? What exactly was at stake in that? So, yeah, the first uh, indictment that the special counsel put out was about the Internet Research Agency accusing the troll farm in St. Petersburg of interfering in the U.S. election. So there were a number of problematic things here. One, by publishing that indictment first, the subtext was this is the first and most important vector of attack that was used 
that is just inaccurate. They didn't say that explicitly in the indictment, obviously, but that was the subtext because of the timing and because of the way the conversation evolved afterwards. Then, for example, another problematic point was in the body of that IRA indictment. A lot of data are cited that from the social media companies and, and, and in fact, small anecdotes are included that play out after the election of Donald Trump. Now, their remit is to study, elect, to investigate the election interference. Why should we even be interested in what comes after the election? Why did, were the numbers cited, the aggregate numbers, not disaggregated and essentially focused on the data points before the election? If you do that, you get a much lower impact, much lower volume, much lower... Just It looks all a lot less impressive than it does afterwards. So I think the careful analysis that I think we have to do if we study disinformation is just in not really there in that first indictment, in my mind. And, and let me just add, because I know this is a very controversial thing to say. When I wrote this book, Active Measures, The History of Disinformation, I became paranoid of becoming a useful idiot myself, like a useful idiot even decades after the fact. A useful idiot was a term of art that literally intelligence agencies used in the Cold War to describe people inadvertently helping disinformation operations. I think there's a really interesting methodological conversation here, but the first methodological point is that political scientists and other writers would do well to come up with uh, technical terms of art that are as catchy as useful idiot. <laughs> I mean, there are less catchy descriptions of useful idiot. Unwitting influence agent is one, but I think useful idiot is sort of gets the point across quite effectively. But I became paranoid of becoming one myself by either overstating the impact of disinformation operation, which obviously would help the aggressor, even in retrospect, to appear more powerful, or conversely by understating its effect, which in a way also would help the aggressor to hide their tracks. So I think the only solution here is to be as rigorous and as thorough as we can possibly be. So that's my point of departure here. So tell me a little bit about what that means in practical terms. What does that mean when you're looking at archives, which are obviously, you know, on the one hand, you are able when you're dealing with historical material to look at memos and communications which were not meant for the public, which the people writing them had reasonable confidence would not be publicly available for a good number of years. Uh, on the other hand, they are, of course, written by people who are very carefully creating their own version of reality. And so many of the things that are in those documents may themselves be based on speculation or may simply be untrue. And then obviously that becomes even harder Right now, you want to make sure that you communicate the very real evidence that there was Russian interference in the 2016 election, but you also don't want to overstate the impact of that, in part because that, as you're saying, would actually serve Russian ends to make the country look even more powerful and even more influential than it really is. So what precautions do you take? And more importantly, what precautions should sort of mere mortals who are not deeply steeped in this material as most of us take to avoid the trap of becoming useful idiots in that way? Yeah, it's a super tough question. And of course, one thing that I did in the book is just to show my work, to be honest about the limitations of the evidence that is available. And you have to be ready to admit error at all time. You know, during the writing process, when you write, I'm sure this happens to all of us who write, as your story evolves, you fall in love with certain assumptions or certain uh, points that you're teasing out or fall in love is a strong word, but you sort of begin to like certain 
argument that you're making. And you have to be ready to just shoot them down on the basis of new evidence that becomes available. And th that is true even after publication, because it's very, very hard if you're describing, as a journalist, for example, if you're describing something where sophisticated, professional, uh, experienced actors are trying to trick you. For example, by giving you a mix of 90% accurate information with a couple of fakes and forgeries slipped in. So the correct information is there to convince you that 100% is correct, but it's not. So, uh, you know, fact-checking becomes a real challenge here. What's one thing that you've changed your mind about? Some theory that you were in love with and you really believed and then some new fact came out and you realized you really were on the wrong path, the description of a particular set of events where you changed your mind perhaps after you published something. What's, what's, what's an example of that? Yeah, a good example is I remember when I started writing the chapter on the famous HIV-AIDS myth that AIDS is an American bioweapon. I thought, okay, this is a great example of a very successful active measure. And the more I looked into it, the more difficult it became to dis the, the description. For example, it turns out that the original idea for that myth, they just picked up, that KGB just picked up from American conspiracy theorists and at the time in gay activist struggles who had articulated that idea already before the Soviets. And indeed, there's some evidence to assume that they picked it up from those gay activist cycles in New York. And that's just, I didn't expect that at all. So I had to sort of re-evaluate my story there. That's fascinating. And it speaks again to the way in which you're exploiting injustices, divisions, tensions within a society and simply trying to amplify them. I mean, in a weird way, that sounds like a pretty close predecessor of what Russia did in 2016. You know, you describe very well the different social media profiles that they created, many of which were not particularly sophisticated, but they picked up on local political tropes. And that worked because those tropes have a real currency in our country. Now, looking forward to the next months, so we're in an election year, What do you think we can assume the Kremlin's goals are going to be this year? And how worried should we be about that? Is it, you know, relative to all the other things going on, something that's of negligible importance? Or do you think that there's a real danger that, emboldened by its at least partial success in 2016, the Kremlin will be able to pull off a bigger feat in 2020? The way the operation in 2016, the larger campaign played out very clearly. You can see in the activity that there was a lot of bottom-up improvisation from the organizations involved, especially GRU and the Internet Research Agency. And at some point, it appears that obviously some top-level guidance was coming in again, which is a, a situation that is very much expected based on the history of these kinds of operations. So what I'm trying to say here is that as we move into 2020, I think we have to expect a certain continued level of operational activity that is just essentially an autopilot because there's a lot of autonomy, it appears, in the Russian security establishment. But that is not going to be a game changer, I think. It's just almost background noise at this stage. Is there a real appetite for escalation on the part of the Kremlin Putin today? I don't know. We don't have any evidence so far. I would personally speculate here that it's probably not in Putin's interest to really escalate even more, because whoever comes in next, whether it's a democratic administration or at some point another republican administration, 
will be, we have to assume, more difficult for Russia than Trump has been. So I don't know whether they want to essentially piss off their future partners even more than they already have. Let me try and provoke you a little bit, which is that if the success of these influence campaigns really depends on the extent of local political divisions, and if what we've seen in 2016 and other instances is an exacerbation of those tensions, a clever use of things like the hacking of John Podesta's emails in order to sow mistrust, but not a extremely successful campaign on social media, not a sort of steeper agent type theory. Would we be best advised simply not to think too much about this topic? I mean, would we be best advised to think the only way that we can make for saner politics is to work at reducing the tensions within our country and making sure that people feel that the political system is more responsive to their frustrations and their needs, that hopefully there's less mutual hatred between Democrats and Republicans, that hopefully we once again will have two sane political parties rather than one that is on a full frontal collision course with our institutions. And if we manage to do all of that, then, you know, Russian influence taking and influence taking from other countries perhaps is going to continue, but it, it won't do any damage. So there's a way of talking about this where, you know, as long as we're deeply divided, influence taking can be effective, but it really only adds sort of 5% on the top. And if we were much more united, then foreign agents could try and create active measures as much as they want. It wouldn't make much of a difference. So perhaps actually the sum of that is it's way less important than it seems. The two hypotheses are not mutually exclusive. Both can be true. There is a serious problem with disinformation operations. And we exaggerate disinformation operations and their effectiveness by an order of magnitude today. I mean, both statements, in my estimation, are accurate statements. We have entered a constructivist nightmare in the sense that by exaggerating disinformation, we are making the actual operations more effective in our own interpretation, because we talk them up, which is ultimately what matters at the end of the day. But also, we're creating a marketplace and a demand for more of these operations, even in third countries. We can see an uptick in contractors and third countries engaging in this kind of activity. So when you're talking about third countries, do you mean not just Russia, which we've been focused on for much of this conversation, but other actors around the world? I mean, my understanding is that Iran and Saudi Arabia and other countries are engaging in forms of this already. And to me, you know, one of the big questions is what would happen if a country like China devoted its considerably larger resources to similar pursuits. You know, other countries must be looking at the at least discursive success that Russia had through its influence taking in 2016 and thinking, why don't we do the same? And if they do that, might the impact be a lot bigger than the impact of Russia in 2016, because they may be able to engage in much more professional tradecraft than sort of the semi-shoddy job you describe in the case of 2016. Yeah. You know, we have several interesting case studies from Iranian actors engaging in, in, in disinformation or active measures activity, some of them dating, you know, back several years, even 2013, even earlier than that. And uh, we see some escalation, you know, in several Middle Eastern countries, and of course, also from China today. 
So I'm not sure I would jump to the conclusion that these operations are going to be even more impactful because one, you need a lot of experience to get this right. And two, we're getting better at stopping it. You know, social media companies are doing the right thing and taking down abuse campaigns. Facebook has done that many times. Twitter now as well. Twitter also publishing the data so we can do research into these phenomena. But also journalists, I think not all of them, but many journalists are getting better at expecting, at dealing with anonymous or difficult to source leaks and have understood that forgery is part and parcel of this type of tradecraft. So uh, I think uh, we're getting somewhat better at this. You know, we're both German. I sometimes compare the situation to the conversation about disinformation in Germany in the 80s and late 70s, where there are cases where Der Spiegel, for example, with KGB or Stasi wanted to trick Der Spiegel and they didn't manage to do so. And instead, Der Spiegel turned the story into a story about disinformation. So, uh, you know. The German history has a couple of fascinating case studies in stock here. Disinformation strikes me as the easy case here. Now, I'm full of admiration for journalists who manage to realize that some highly sophisticated actor, or perhaps sometimes less sophisticated actor, is trying to trick them by giving them some information that's correct and some information that's incorrect. And they manage to make that distinction and even for you know, their reporting bears out all the, all the true facts that have been given, and they still realize the 10% that is incorrect, and then they turn that into a story about disinformation. I mean, chapeau bas, my head off to anybody who manages to do that. But the difficult moral or ethical question for journalism seems to me to be about true information, which is to say that, you know, if I manage to hack into somebody's email and find out that, you know, whatever, they're, they're having an affair or they you know, have somewhat dodgy financial dealings, but this information is given to me by hackers from a hostile power who are just trying to sow discord and so on in the ways you're talking about to distrust trust in the political system. What should I do with that? On the one hand, this is publicly relevant information. It's a real scandal. Uh, these people should, if it's something like financial misdealings, let's leave you know private peccadillos to the side, be held to account for that. But on the other hand, I clearly am a tool in the hands of this foreign power if I press ahead and publish. I mean, what should the best practices for media organizations be in that yeah. context? Well, let's turn to one of those German examples, because it's just so amazing. In late 1969, early 1970, the KGB surfaced secret American war plans in Germany, known as Operations Plan 10-1. And what they did when they surfaced this top-secret document in Germany is they sent it to both Stern, um, which is sort of a lowbrow weekly, and Spiegel, which is a more highbrow, sort of more higher-quality weekly already, back in the day, of course. And uh, what happened next is amazing. Der Stern ran with a story as framed by KGB, including a forged cover letter and they sort of used the framing that KGB offered, which was misleading, and Der Spiegel turned the disinformation story into the actual story. And what happened next is amazing. Der Spiegel revealed the actual source of the secret files, which was an American spy, a KGB spy. So basically, Spiegel revealed that its competitor in Hamburg was falling for a Soviet disinformation operation. And uh, in the process, exposing the operation as you know, a disinformation operation. And so what did KGB do next? I mean, think about it for a moment. What would you do next? If I may play professor for a moment. 
with my colleague here. Oh, what would you do next? Yeah. I don't know. I think I would fail my uh, job application for the KGB, which I'll take as a uh, badge of honor for my failure <laughs> class. This is this is. A... Give me the answer, Herr Professor. So so uh, sorry, um, but but KGB decided okay, let's reward Stern and send them more secret files with really impressive news value. And this time they did not forge any content, as far as we know. So they gave Stern nuclear targeting lists that included West German targets, which obviously is a massive story in Germany at the time, in the middle of the Cold War. Americans target West German cities with nuclear weapons. So Henry Nannen at the time uh, at Stern, how you know he was facing that very difficult ethical question: What am I supposed to do now? I know this is a KGB disinformation operation. Uh, I know it comes from an American spy in Paris, ultimately in the early 60s. And it appears the information is actually correct. I also know that the KGB knows this, and I know that the Americans know it, but the German government does not know that they're targeted with nuclear weapons, most likely, because we can see that in the classification headers. So what do you do? Do you publish a knowing disinformation operation that is accurate, in fact, an active measure? Or do you not publish And he decided to publish. And he spelled all that out. And I think he made the right call. So you think that if the news value of the information you're given is high enough, and if your confidence that it is accurate is high enough, then you should still frame it for the readers so they know where the information is coming from and that it probably was deliberately obtained and distributed by a foreign power but you should still go ahead and publish nevertheless. I think so, yeah. I think that's the, the right call. If you can verify it somehow, and if you caveat and are honest about the likely source. But of course, in real life, you often will not be in a position to... You can only speculate about the real source. So fact-checking and making sure that uh, the contents are accurate is absolutely crucial. And by the way, you know, let's put this in context briefly, just to make this hard, as hard as it really is. Think back to Snowden. Snowden leaks start in 2013, June, July 2013. This is also the time when we see an uptick in active measures. And one of the fascinating questions that we cannot answer today, because we don't have the files, but may be able to answer in a couple of decades, is whether Snowden essentially re-inspired the Russian government to get back into the business of active measures and leaking at scale, or at least played a role there. Because you cannot know the history of active measures, see what Snowden was doing, and I'm not implying that Snowden acted on behalf of a foreign government at all here, and then not say, oh my God, this is so effective. Um, we just have to... And also, how great is it, how easy is it to f slip in forgeries into this kind of revelation? So uh, that's how hard these questions are. That's fascinating, and it actually leads me into the question that was on my mind next, which is, you know, that obviously interest in the field of active measures have soared in the last few years, in good part because of the debate around the 2016 election. But your book sort of brilliantly shows that this is a practice of longstanding. What explains why we're particularly concerned about this in particular moments and not in others? Is it that foreign powers simply were doing less of that after the end of the 
Cold War and now that we're in a somewhat more adversarial international situation again, this kind of activity has picked up. Is it that Western democracies were simply in better shape and more consolidated? So for a lot of this stuff was going on, we didn't worry as much about it because it wasn't able to have as much of an impact. What explains when we're interested in this? And is there a rational reason to be more worried about this right now than we were 10 or 20 or 30 years ago? Or actually, could there be a deflationary account where active measures have always been a part of the international competition between countries? It's always been able to do a little bit of damage. It's never destroyed democracies uh, sort of single-handedly. And so perhaps the amount of attention we're paying to it at the moment is actually overstated in certain ways. <clears throat> These are hard questions. So, you know, let me, I don't know if I may, let me respond with another question. Please. I mean, you know, now we're just questioning each other, but you asked me a very hard question that completely stumped me. So I thought <laughs> I, I would have to try my best to do the same to you, but go ahead. Yes, you did. You did. Um, so the elephant in the room here is what some democracies are doing that in effect, you know, looks like some form of disinformation operation as well. It's trying to massage intelligence assessments and put pressure on you know, the intelligence community to find that the Wuhan virus lab is somehow responsible for the coronavirus outbreak. That kind of thing is, is just deeply worrying. So I'm holding on to intelligence agencies as my object of study so that I can avoid the super unpleasant route that leads me towards looking at what the government here in the United States, what the White House is, is doing to a, to a degree also what we see in, in Europe, even in the UK. I mean, uh, it's getting a little better now, but it's very unpleasant. And I struggle with that a lot. So I mentioned Snowden earlier, just briefly. I just reviewed Barton Gelman's new book for the Washington Post, Dark Mirror, who was one of the journalists covering the Snowden files when they came out. And it's a fascinating book, and it led me to reassessing Snowden. I was always a skeptic. I cringed in 2013 when he called high-powered surveillance capabilities that the NSA had turnkey tyranny. I cringed in 2013. I'm not sure I still cringe today because America's flirtation with authoritarian rule is bending the arc of history in Snowden's favor, so to speak. So I think we're facing an ever more dangerous moment. We'll find out whether the trend is reversing in November or not. But yeah. So you mentioned the coronavirus, and obviously I don't mean to ask you for an assessment of the truth of all of these claims, but give us a guide for how to handle those claims, right? So we are seeing the Chinese government engage in very obvious and straightforward disinformation, trying to claim that the virus originated in Italy or in the United States in the fall of last year against the best scientific evidence we have. And of course, it's not outside the realm of possibility that a lab handling this virus may have had a breach of protocol, may have made a mistake, and, and that would be at the origin of something like that. It's, it's certainly a theoretical possibility. And then at the same time, we are seeing all of these claims, which I think, calling them active measures is perhaps a little bit of flattery to the current American administration, which, you know, it's, this is not a carefully prepared piece of misinformation. It's something sort of ad-libbed by the president and other senior members of the administration, but it certainly is spreading a false representation of the state of knowledge that the United States and American intelligence communities have about the true origin of the virus. And as best we currently know, nobody in the intelligence community does have any reliable proof 
But this is indeed the case. And it sounds as though most responsible uh, scientists and observers believe that it probably did originate, as the first stories indicated, from this market in Wuhan rather than a research agency or anything like that. But how do we... Yeah, I think we just don't know, yeah. What are the principles we apply in order to make sense of all of these competing claims? When we know that there's few reliable narratives... Is the one sentence maxim simply reserve judgment and don't jump to conclusions? Is is there anything more that can be gained as advice from the long history of active measures? I mean, on the coronavirus origin story, I just think it's such a fraught story. You know, there's two questions, really. One is, is it possible that the virus was engineered as opposed to evolved naturally? And obviously, I'm not a, I'm not qualified to answer that question myself. I can only recite what I read in peer-reviewed scientific journals. Nature had a had an article on that question a couple of uh, weeks ago, and it appears that there's strong evidence that indicates that it is not engineered the virus. And then, second question is about that virus lab: whether they ever held and when they held for the first time a sample of the virus in the lab, because if it's not engineered and it, if it's naturally occurring, then of course. You know, it was already there if they had it in the first place. So it's not the question of whether it could have escaped is far less significant if it's if it's not an engineered virus. So I don't know. I think the entire origin story is completely uh, fraught, and, and and it just looks like people are trying to spin this to me on all sides. I'm certainly not going to touch that story in any way myself, in the sense that I I'm just observing. The one thing that I would say in summary is. When I wrote the book, I could literally see the fog rise as I moved closer to the present. As soon as the archives close and the end of the Cold War, and as soon as you can only rely on a few defectors, a few former officers you can talk to, plus, of course, the exhaustive operations in paper or in digital form, you can see how things get a lot more muddy and a lot more difficult to understand. So I've become more cautious as a result and won't jump to conclusions quickly. So I think we have to understand that we are operating with very, very limited information right now. I know that's not a very, that sounds like dodging the, the question, but I think it's important to, to say that every now and then and to understand it. No, I mean, I think it's what in our craft, which is to say teaching uh, is called a teachable moment. Uh, if somebody who is at the very, very forefront of knowledge about disinformation and active measures says we simply have to reserve judgment. There just isn't a way of knowing what's going on at the moment. I think that's a solitary warning for the rest of us. Thomas, thank you so much for all of your very important work and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Asha. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. This podcast is generously supported by the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.